Becoming a millionaire is a dream for many. Having to no longer worry about living from paycheck to paycheck or paying the bills on time. But reaching that $1 million mark is easier said than done. It takes hard work, discipline, and adopting a millionaire mindset to reach your full financial potential. It's also about having a long-term investment strategy. Think billionaire investor Warren Buffett and sticking to your budget to ensure you invest your money and get it working for you as soon as possible. But what exactly is a millionaire mindset and how do you manage your money like a millionaire? Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams. I'm Felicity Glover, the personal finance editor at The National. Joining me today is Sam Instone, the co-chief executive of wealth management company AES. Before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to Pocketful of Dirhams on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So tell me, do millionaires manage their money differently to the average person? Wow, I love this question. And I'm going to give you an answer inspired by my favorite author, Morgan Housel, who has written the best-selling book, The Psychology of Money, because maybe the best way to do this is to talk about a story of two people. And the first is Grace, born as an orphan. She uh, never got married, had no children, had no relatives, and lived in a one-bedroom house working as a secretary. And in 2010, she died at that ripe old age of 100, leaving over $7 million to charity. Wow. And everybody thought, uh, the executors thought, did she inherit it? Where did this money come from? And it actually transpired that she took what little money she could save, invested it wisely, and left it alone for 70 years. And with no start in life, managed to get that $7 million. Whilst on the other side of America, you've got the same story of Richard Falcone, who was born to a wealthy family, educated at Harvard, had an MBA, worked on Wall Street in the 80s, headed a major division for Merrill Lynch, important and powerful, retired in his mid-40s. And two weeks after the death of Grace in 2010, he filed for bankruptcy. And what's interesting is perhaps there's no other industry where this type of thing is even possible, no industry other than finance or investment where someone like Grace can so massively outperform. Because if you think about it, a Harvard cardiologist, they're going to be amazing at what what, what they do. And so what I think is so interesting about investing and doing well with money is that it's not about what you know. It's entirely about how you behave. It's not about how smart you are, your models or your background. Good investing is all about who you trust, relationships with fear and greed, your ability to take a long-term mindset, how gullible you are, where you seek information from. So ultimately, it's all about you and it's all about behavior, which is why that millionaire mindset is so interesting because none of those things are analytical exercises. They're all behavioral exercise. And what's important about behavior is that it's exceptionally hard to teach even to very smart people. It's not like maths or economics as we learn it. It's behavior is really soft, mushy, swept under the rug by an industry, which I'll talk about today, which is really hell-bent upon rewarding itself out of your money, not on helping you. And so what can we do about this? The fact that the millionaires, how they manage their money, how they manage their behavior. And I, I'm a big believer the only way to wrap our heads around this area is to look at stories of real people dealing with real risks and uncertainties and learn what we can from 
from the stories. Absolutely. Those are two very contrasting tales. So even if you come from a wealthy background, there's still a very big chance that you could actually lose it all. And then regardless of what culture around the world, we have paddy fields to paddy field within rice field to rice field within three generations, shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve within three generations. And actually it shows that those that are good at accumulating wealth often aren't the ones that come from it and here in the middle east we have this huge multi-trillion dollar wealth transfer window at the moment of people that generated vast wealth transferring it to people with a different mindset and different behavior set given that much of our behavior and our emotions around money are formed in early childhood and early adulthood so we've got this huge wealth transfer window and it's all about how we behave and we often talk you can behave your way to, to wealth it's not about what we we know because knowledge economics maths degrees harvard oxford cambridge it's not actually going to help you it's all about behavior but that's an uncomfortable truth that the industry traditional industry don't always want you to know right okay so we'll get to the mindset in a minute but tell me what are some of the different approaches millionaires use to manage their money well the spectrum goes from do it yourself on one end of that spectrum through to potentially uh, areas of technology which are popular in particular with millennials building money such as robos uh, there is the private banking industry the traditional financial advisor or what i would say product vending industry and then there are planning professionals and so there's a spectrum from what one side um, to, to the the other side and I would tend to see that wealthier individuals with more complex needs have discovered the emergent profession of financial planning and fiduciaries they tend to be uh, the wealthiest with the most complexity tend to be very familiar with hiring very good lawyers very good accountants and they hire very good planners and there's something prevalent within financial services called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which actually derives from the case of MacArthur Wheeler, who in 1995 robbed a bank with his face covered in lemon juice. And it's a cognitive bias that with a little bit of knowledge uh, can, can be a bad thing because he knew that lemon juice was an ingredient in invisible ink and therefore thought by putting lemon juice on his face, he could be invisible and that believe it or not i know that's that's interesting <laughs> that is a very interesting so this this um cognitive bias that states that um people with low ability um at a task overestimate their ability you, you have that popularized with people like malcolm gladwell the ten thousand hour rule to become an expert and I think the wealthier individuals are hiring people with many tens of thousands of hours of experience to help them make their, uh, their decisions. And because those people command high fees, those people aren't accessible to the ordinary um, people. So there's an advice gap. So we'll talk later on what can people do if they are within that advice gap. The, the most professional, most experienced people with tens of thousands of hours of experience are helping multimillionaires become even richer. So the, there's a vacuum of information which tends to get filled by uh, banks, brokers, um, financial advisors who are selling products to, to that, that market. 
And so what are the things, I'm sure we'll come on to it, that people can do to give them, to arm themselves with the, the knowledge about the behaviours required to not put lemon juice on our, our faces and to make sure that make the best decisions about our ideal future? Definitely, uh, let's stay away from lemon juice. Um, so let's then get into this mindset, the millionaire mindset. Is it a skill that comes naturally? Are people born with it? Or do you need to completely change your lifestyle and spending habits to be able to have this psychological kind of approach um, to to managing your money successfully. So I'll come back to the managing the, the money successfully is about managing one oneself. And within this, there are no points awarded for difficulty. And my story in this case is going to involve the war on cancer because over the last decades, billions and billions of dollars have been spent on cancer treatments. And it's increasingly become apparent that a far more effective way um, for for the war on cancer is focusing on prevention rather than cure. Because we know that cancer is linked to poor diet, a lack of exercise and smoking. But these are all behavioural issues. And Robert Weinberg, the MIT biology professor and leading cancer researcher, freely admits that he's got no interest as a molecular biologist in researching a way to prevent cancer, but only to cure cancer. And this is applicable to investment because we also know that to succeed in investing is very simple. I can say it in four things. You need to spend less than you make. You need to save the difference. You need to buy a low-cost diversified portfolio and be patient. And that's 90% of what needs to be done. But just like exercise, just like diet and nutrition, it's simple but not easy. And there are many things that can be done for this, such as educational meta-learning, learning about our behavior, uh, environment, making sure that we are with other people, so millionaires hanging out with other successful millionaires, so the passage of information um, is there and an encouragement, i.e. giving people nudges when they behave in the, in the right way. And the Nobel laureate, Richard Taylor, who wrote a book called Nudges, uh, can the encouragement with middle-aged men in Lycra, such as myself, get from using applications like Strava uh, on our cycling. But that accountability or the nudges, which our fitness apps will, will give us the key cyclists, uh, help us move in the right direction. And so really that mindset is all about self-management and our behavior, not necessarily about, uh, as the traditional industry would have us think about managing our money. But that said, is there a secret formula to amassing wealth? But I guess it comes kind of full circle then to what you were just talking about, you know, um, with the mindset um, and 90%, you know, it's about spending less than you earn, taking that and investing and being patient. Absolutely. The simple but not easy things to do. But I will caveat with that is the good news, a secret formula to amassing wealth. And that is the miracle of compound growth. And my lesson here is that timing is meaningless, but time is everything. And perhaps I can illustrate that with a story about ice ages, because for many years, we have thought that ice ages began with cold um, cold spells um, in winter, and the world would get colder and colder and colder. But it's only recently that we discovered that it actually transpires are started by mild summers. And a mild summer means that not all the ice melts and the following winter, the ice has a base to build upon. And 
after thousands of years upon building of what started on a seemingly tiny detail of a mild summer, we end up living in a giant snowball. Or the woolly mammoths end up living in a giant snowball. Um, Warren Buffett, we can look at his life, a man who started investing at the age of 10 and by 20 was already relatively wealthy with a net worth then of $100,000, but um, averaged up to today, that's $5 million by the time he was 20. However, 99% of his current wealth uh, came after he was the age of 50 and 97% after his 65th birthday. And if we put that into how most people live their lives, beginning at, let's say, earning at 25 and retiring at 65, if we put that into Warren Buffett's life, he would only have had a net worth of $11.6 million or 99.9% less wealth. And over 2,000 books have been written about Warren Buffett, but ultimately, just like the, the Ice Age, the secret um, is, is time or compounding. And most investment mistakes come from asking questions like, what will happen next? Whilst most investing fortunes are going to come from questions like, how long can I stay invested for? But that answer is too simple for most people to hear. But the truth is time and the miracle of compound growth, which is very hard other than by using stories and talking about what can happen over the time and how many times you can fold a sheet of paper before it reaches from here to the moon to illustrate to people what that power is. And it's all about time inside the market, investing, not the timing of the of the market. And that's the difference between good investing and bad investing. So it's about putting your money into your investments and leaving it. But continuing to invest on top of that and just letting the compound interest do all the hard work for you. Absolutely. Just like Warren Buffett or Grace, exactly. Just simple um, to do, but not easy to do because of our behavior, emotions and biases. But what if I was tempted, you know, to take it out or, you know, sort of switch it about, um, keep chopping and changing? What if I started investing in fad type investments, you know, that's that's really going to affect the outcome of what I end up with when I retire. Yeah, huge. So the, the next best thing or the last greatest thing, lack of diversification, concentration risk, and trying to time the market, that is the quickest way to wealth destruction. However, of course, the wealth, the traditional wealth advice industry that want to sell new products, that's what they're going to say. They, they, because it's easy to sell. We've got the next best thing. It's a surefire that um, they're going to appear, appeal to your greed or or fear. However, the reality and the evidence um, statistics bear out that the quickest way to wealth destruction is by trying to time the market to buy the next next best thing. Um, it, it just doesn't doesn't work. You can be very lucky, and then of course, if you are lucky, you get confirmation bias. You, you try it again, but repeatedly, I see incredibly wealthy people lose fortunes by breaking the very simple rules of saving more than they earn, um, investing it, diversifying widely, investing wisely. Just a thought, what do people find challenging or the most challenging aspect of being patient, investing their savings and things like that, and just keeping it there? What stands in their way to find, you know, the success that they're looking for? I think it's the understanding of investing that the goal of investing is not to minimize boredom, um, but to maximize returns. And a very similarly to a goalkeeper who takes penalties. 
statistically, the goalkeeper that stay, stands in the middle with his arms stretched out of the goal when somebody takes a penalty stands the greatest chance of saving the goal because the ball goes down the middle, hits them, and bounces off. But they feel they have to do something, so they dive left or right. So they increase their odds of not saving the goal because they feel the pressure that they have to, have to do something. And so I think understanding that the goal of investing isn't to outperform necessarily outperform the market, beat everybody else, it's to capture the the inevitably strong returns that come from capital markets over a period period of time. And doing that should be like watching grass grow or paint dry. It's not what your friendly financial advisor who you play golf with or your private banker um, who takes you out to a nice dinner um, necessarily is going to want to tell you because they have a sales target. They want to vend a product from with full of Southeast Asian equity or a cryptocurrency or a gold or commodity commodity fund to you. But so often doing nothing is a much better outcome. And as Charlie Munger said about Warren Buffett, people don't copy Warren Buffett because they feel it's too too simple to do. And I feel that's the story with Grace that I told at the beginning as well. It's very simple, just don't do anything. And a good friend of mine, Steve Cronin from Better Simple Savings, uh, has, uh, of course, the wealthiest person in his menagerie of different characters is a skeleton because the, the dead skeleton does nothing and ends up with the most money. Absolutely. I think Steve is right on that one. So what type of investments should people consider to start, you know, managing their money like a millionaire? You know, um, should, should there be a certain risk level that they're aiming for? Should property, physical property be included in the portfolio? I mean, or should it be something, you know, more along the lines of the low cost ETFs, for example, which are, you know, very popular these days? Without a shadow of a doubt, I would be a big fan of index fund investing. And my story with this is about index funds is that you can be wrong at least half of the time and still do great. And if you look at a newborn baby's brain at 6, 12, 24 months, there's a huge amount of synaptic growth and connections occurring. And from birth up to two years old, uh, the brain scans show lots and lots of connections. But from that point onwards, it's all downhill. And as a 25-year-old, I think you have half the connections, the synaptic connections in your brain as a two-year-old. And if you were a parent looking at that, you'd be highly alarmed with it. Uh, You'd be terrified that something wrong is happening with your child. But it transpires that actually it's sort of the brain is rewiring itself to things that um, it actually needs. And young children have all types of connections they don't actually need, even to the extent of being able to smell sounds and hear smells and this type of thing. So the brain is rewiring, decluttering. And that brings me back to index funds, because if you look at something like the Russell 3000, the median company, um, which which is 3000 top performing companies, the median company within that index of 3,000 underperforms and 40% of those companies actually lose money. 7% of the, the ones within that index account for massive returns and these are the world's top comp- companies. So the overall in- index, your risk is highly diversified and they represent a very cost-effective way for retail investors to access the market. The, the same is that true of the S&P 500, which has had 
200 times growth within that same period period of time. A small amount of firms within the index account for a vast majority of the, the returns. A little bit like if I pick one favorite stock, which would be Netflix, and that's had 400 times growth over the last 16 years. Um, it's lost 70% of its value three times, 50% of its value seven times over that period. So not a single retail investor has stayed invested in Netflix and experienced that 400 times growth over the, the 16 years. And it goes back to Eisenhower's quote of the military genius is a man that can do everything, uh, who, who can do average things when everyone around them is losing their head. The benefit of index funds is they are massively diversified your risk. And so you don't need to make the speculative bets that perhaps that banker is trying to make you you make because it, we know that half the time you can be wrong within an index, but the overall index is going to perform very well and it's going to be cost effective. So my favorite way for investing is without doubt in a globally diversified low cost index fund. And that potentially is the commoditized aspect of financial planning at, at the end, of course, far more important to that is trying to get clarity upon why people are investing in the in the first place over their value set and what's important to them over the direction of their overall life which giving them confidence for the plan and how their cash flow statements look and then finally what do they if they need to invest if they need to participate in the market to get higher returns to keep them in the life they want for the rest of their expected lifetime or to leave a legacy to their children then the most efficient way for people to do that is to access a globally diversified low-cost index fund so this is a hypothetical here what if you know a person is you know 50 plus years they've not done any saving or investing does this mean that you know they're, they're literally having to buy a lottery ticket you know to make or to try and win you know a quick one million um before it's too late absolutely not i'd go back to the professional planning process and begin with really the why behind what what we do getting clarity on the purpose of generating wealth and each person like snowflakes is entirely unique they have different preferences some like cars some like stamps on like foods and finding out um uh, what's important to people and then putting their life down into numbers which just like a set of company accounts represents the health of a company we could take a an incredibly important businessman and we could take a gardener and we can just like a set of company accounts look at change that life into numbers and look at likely projections and cash flow paths for the, the future, which can then give confidence around what that future may look within the planning process. So if people have left it late later, and by by that I'd say that a lot of people leave it to their 40s, 50s, and even into their 60s before they begin planning, we can work out that potentially where they might want to retire to a low-cost area of the world. Um, we might be able to change the plans around. We might be able to do all types of different planning things. And most importantly, a wealthy life isn't to do with a set number. It's the ability, we look at or define it as the ability to under, underwrite a life that's meaningful to that person. So without establishing the why or the purpose of, of wealth for them, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to plan on how to underwrite a life that's meaningful to them. But the good thing is that a life that's meaningful to most people doesn't necessarily just depend on money and it definitely doesn't depend just on chasing money 
or taking speculative gambles or putting things at risk and just buying a lottery ticket, buying cryptocurrency, potentially um, tragic actions, which can end in, in tears, definitely aren't the way to getting to plan properly and professionally a life that is meaningful to that person. And so I think professional planning can really help people who have potentially left it to later on in life, but they are not abnormal. That is the, the normal. Most people um, aren't the people like Warren Buffett that begin at 10 years old. That's a relief, I think, for some people. Um, I mean, I think you're right. There are definitely a lot who, who start later, um, but there is still hope. Thank goodness. Um, okay, so Warren Buffett, I mean, we've talked about him quite a bit, and I do find him quite inspirational, you know, in that he lives well below his means and, you know, he has this very steady long-term investment strategy. Would you recommend that everybody follow this approach if their target is to reach $1 million and beyond? The wise sage of Omaha. So he is obviously inspirational to a lot of people that work in wealth, uh, wealth planning and particularly professional planning um, index funds. He comes out and his business partner, Charlie Munger, comes out with great quotes. A couple of them I like is the first rule of compounding is not to interrupt it. Um, it's a Charlie Munger quote. And it's definitely about not making mistakes and not reacting. But despite him being an inspiration to us all uh, and, and providing so much information on how to be better investment, if we look at his returns, the private um, over the last 20 years, private equity returns have been 13.5% average per annum, Berkshire Hathaway 18.6% return. And so there's a 5.1% outperformance in his investment methodology. But private equity, whilst Berkshire Hathaway, he just takes $100,000 a year salary out of Berkshire Hathaway and it doesn't have fees inbuilt because it's actually a share in individual stock. Um, but the charging structure of private equity funds normally have a 2 in 20, which accounts for 4%. Um, which is why there's a difference. So he has basically hit 1% above the average private equity returns. So it has been relatively average, a little bit above, above average, but net of fees and charges, but he's just done it for a very long period of time. As I said early, earlier, Charlie Munger said about Warren, you'd be amazed if you'd um, watched him because he literally does nothing. Um, most investors don't copy our model because it's too too simple. And that's why I come back to that ability when all the people around you are losing their heads. If you can just have a plan and make sure that you follow that documented plan and you're aware that at times the markets are going to be subject to unforeseeable uh, events, then you too can be on that trajectory of compound growth, just as Warren Buffett has done so successfully. So he is a real inspiration. But rather than the 2,000 books written about his value investing methodology or the complexities behind what he does, distilling it down into simple ideas and taking them very seriously, I think, can really help people uh, have a successful investment experience. What are the do's and don'ts to invest like a millionaire? The do's and don'ts of investing like a millionaire, and I think... The first one would be take a simple idea and take it seriously and understand what we discussed about the goal of investing is not to minimize boredom, but to maximize returns. And people need to understand that no investment recommendation is worth it if they can't stick with it and keep on doing it. And in a way, 
understanding that it's about what we do to ourselves and our behavior is actually an optimistic way because there isn't of looking at things because there's nothing that we can do about stock market crashes there's nothing that we can do about things like the unforeseeable such as COVID-19 and then of course I'll say take wise counsel from someone with tens of thousands thousand hours of experience don't be the man with lemon juice um, make sure that that wise counsel has no incentive like a bank a broker many commission-based financial advisors in order to sell you a product but they're acting in your best interest and i think if you can follow those do's and don'ts you'll end up inevitably letting compound interest and a lack of action earn yourself to being a millionaire i think that's excellent advice thank you so much for joining us this week sam thank you so much for inviting me it's been a real pleasure talking to you today thank you this week to sam instone co-chief executive of aes if you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me at pf@thenational.ae. And remember, PF stands for personal finance. Please do subscribe to Pocketful of Dearings on your podcasting app to receive weekly updates. And also leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison, and I've been your host, Felicity Glover.